Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 170 of the Intercooler podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Now, this week, we're talking about the Goodwood Festival of Speed. Um, we're recording this on the Monday after the 2023 Goodwood Festival of Speed, which was also the 30th anniversary. So we talk about the origins of the event, the very first one, which Andrew was at, how it's evolved over the years. And then we get stuck into this year's running as well, which was a really good, really busy one. Um, first of all, though, Please remember to rate and review the podcast, and while you're doing it, just hit the follow button or the subscribe button on whichever app you use. It means you never miss an episode, but it actually helps us enormously as well. So please just do that and enjoy the episode. Anyone who had half an eye on your social media feeds or the Intercooler social media feeds this weekend, Andrew, will know that you've had a memorable Goodwood Festival of Speed. Um, yeah. We'll talk about it in some detail, but... Uh, we could talk about the Festival of Speed more broadly because this was was the 30th anniversary running of it, um, which seems like a good time to just sort of reflect and look back. Not least because you were at the very first one in, well, I guess, 1993. And presumably back then it was just a little garden party, wasn't it? Well, it was certainly what it was meant to be. Mm. Um, you know, it was one day. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, I've still got the programme here, which is like a sheet of paper. Yeah. Um, there was a display outside the front of the house, but it was an Aston Martin DB7 in a case. Yeah. And I think for many people, it was the first time they'd seen the DB7. Um, and we all just sort of wandered around, like, just going, wow. Mm. Um, and just <laughs> thinking, this, co- this, this company that we've worried about for so long, it, it would appear to have a future after all. So that was that. Um, and yeah. Um, you know, they, they have this massive party now, don't they, on the Saturday night with hundreds of people. Well, then, I think we just queued up 
in the sort of canteen or a cafe or something and got some sandwiches or maybe a plate of chips or something. But I do remember seeing Ken Tyrrell and Ron Dennis sitting on the steps of Goodwood House having their meal <laughs> um, and thinking, this is quite cool. And yeah, from there on, it just evolved and evolved and evolved into the absolute monster events it is today. I, I drift, so I, I actually drove at that event. Um, Honda somehow found, I don't know, a dozen NSXs from somewhere. And we were all issued with blue boiler suits for some reason. I can't remember. The only other person I can remember who was driving them was Clarkson was in the run. Um, and it was our first look at the hill. And the hill hasn't changed at all. It's exactly the same now as it was then, albeit with rather more hay bales. Um, and I can remember going up and thinking, this is tricky. Mm. This <laughs> is tricky. And I think that is the enduring thing about the Goodwood Festival Speak. Everybody goes there and they see all these amazing cars and these incredible stands and everything else. But as a driver, and I think that what people sometimes estimate, often to their considerable uh, peril, is just how difficult it is. If you're trying to go fast to get a car up it, it's a really, really difficult bit of road. Um, it's very narrow. It's got a big crown on it. It's got crests. It's got high speed changes of direction. There's obviously Malcolm, you know, the corner of, you know, which gets everybody. Yeah. It's a really, really difficult bit. I and, mean, you know, I was talking to, oh, I've been talking to loads of people over the weekend, but really, really, you know, household name drivers. Um, Formula One driver, sports car drivers, you know, about what you do when you go there. And they all say the same thing. They say you make a lot of noise going off the hill, uh, going off the line, and then the rest of the time you're just looking after the car and mm. making sure that nothing goes wrong. You're not trying to go that fast uh, because, you know, as has been said so many times by so many people, the only run you do that anyone will ever remember is the one that ends up in the bales. Mm. And you just don't want to be that person. And probably... The, the temptation is to think that the spectators are judging you if you drive cautiously. I don't think anyone's doing that. You know, no one's thinking, "God, that was a bit tame, wasn't it?" They they probably just think, "Well, it's it's clearly a tricky road. It's potentially a tricky car. Cold tires. It's expected." I, th I think it's also one of the. I don't really want to say sort of skills because it sounds like I'm sort of blowing my own trumpet, but I think that there is a knack. I think there is a way of getting a car up the hill in a way mm. that probably doesn't look spectacular, but it looks good. But the car is being demonstrated. You're not mm. just crawling along. People can hear it. They can see it. It looks That's like right. it's moving fast. While at the same time, you are taking no risks at all. Mm. Yeah, no one cares when you get on the brakes of Malcolm. No, no. one's watching your brake lights. No. And thinking, oh, that's <laughs> no. a bit of shit. No. You know, they're not doing that. Um, and so, you know, and I, and I, and I think the the secret to it is to find that balance that balance where you're going fast enough that people just i am not remotely uh, well known enough to be one of these guys who can go up uh, 20 miles an hour and everybody loves it because you know i'm one of the most famous racing drivers in the world i'm not i'm just another bloke in another car so you're trying to demonstrate the car and finding the balance between making the car look like it's being driven in the way that it was designed to be driven but without taking the smallest, slightest risk with it, is, yeah, I don't think it's easy. And I think that, you know, I've been lucky enough to do it a few times. So I kind of instinctively, I hope, feel that I, I know how to do it. But it's, yeah, I mean, you only have to look at how many people get get it wrong, um, mm. particularly by going a bit too fast, um, to know that it's just not, it's not the easiest course in the world to, 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 to negotiate. And when it goes wrong, it tends to go quite badly wrong, um, 
and very, very publicly. Yes. Well, Malcolm's the one, isn't it? That left-hander that takes you onto the stretch up the hill. Um, and it is, a, it is a tricky corner because you approach it very, very fast. You go under the bridge and there's a gentle brow. Um, and if you wait until <clears throat> you've come over the brow and you spot you have the corner, you've crashed. You have crashed. You just don't it's, know it yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you have to be braking before you can see the corner. And plenty of good drivers have gone off there just because it is so deceptive. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's bumpy there. There's a big crowd on the road. You're approaching it blind. You're not completely straight. Um, it's kind of like a perfect storm of an approach to a corner. Mm. But it's fine as long as you know that it's there. And you know, and, and those who go off there can't say, oh, I didn't know. You know, they do put lots of markers out there. Yeah. You, know, you can't drive along there and just suddenly come across the corner and have any right to be surprised by the fact. They don't exactly you know, hide its existence from you. Mm. Um yeah, but anyway, so I mean, there were a lot of um, cars went off, went off there. The Hyundai prototype. Yeah. Um, there's somebody telling me it broke the record for the number of bales it went through. That's not a record you want, is it? But it did. It went off so hard. Well, I mean, the footage is just unbelievable. I mean, there's a bit of the footage. You freeze frame it, all you can see is straw. The entire yeah. picture is just full of exploding straw. Those bales weigh hundreds of kilograms each, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, and it, and it got. <sighs> I think it got through four or five rows of them. Oh. it's so easy, isn't it, to sort of engage in a bit of Schadenfreude and make capital about a, somebody else's bad luck. Um, I don't know what happened in that particular one. I mean, it looked like he didn't even turn in, and there mm. are some people saying that is indicative of some kind of problem with the car. I suspect it's not. No, I don't. Um, think so. I suspect it's just. I don't know whether it was a new driver. I mean, it, it is. It is often the case that the people who go off there are hotshot drivers who haven't been to Google before. So they're going yes. fast and they feel the need to show that they're going fast speed. Um, but they haven't. I wonder if, you know, when we go to the revival and we race there or the members meeting, um, you know, you're not going anywhere without getting a driver's briefing. Now, you don't get that at the Festival of Speed. Mm. Um, they issue with briefing notes, final instructions, which racing drivers being racing drivers probably don't get read in the in the, in the fine detail. They should probably be absorbed in and they tend to just sort of go you know, in the bag with everything else. And I just wonder whether some kind of way, whether it's something that gets written and sent out, which you have to tick and return to show that you acknowledge it, just because, I mean, Molcom, it's such a sort of bogey corner. And I think that if you found a way of, either by in person at, you know, when everybody signed on or whatever, um, just saying to everybody, just watch out. Mm. Because I mean, certainly more accidents happen at Malcolm than every other corner on the course put together. Yeah. Massively. Even if, even if you just made it a bit mysterious, just said, if you don't know about Malcolm, ask someone or you will crash. If you just left that in everyone's minds, they would go, hang on, what do they mean by that? And, and, and obviously out, that you? would... That would save a lot of, you know, red faces <laughs> and bent metal. Um, but it would also save an awful lot of time. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, runs at the end of the day being cancelled and spectators having to watch not much happening on the hill. Um, so I don't know. Um, I just wonder whether that might not be a uh, a sort of sensible, pragmatic, practical thing to do to ensure it doesn't happen quite so often, which it does. Yes, you'd think so, wouldn't you? So, <clears throat> Malcolm hasn't changed over the years. The, the hill hasn't changed over the years. 
I think I first went as just as a punter when I was 16, 15, 16, 17, something like that. Um, so not quite, well, maybe 20-ish years ago. Um, <clears throat> went with my dad. And I remember walking around, particularly the paddock area, where lots of the cars are kept during the day, with my camcorder just shooting everything, sort of doing a little running commentary. Um, but also, I remember standing by the hill and watching cars and hearing cars being driven in a way I had never seen before. I'd, you know, I potentially hadn't been to a race track for a race meeting before then. Um, and just the noise, the tyre smoke, the speed... I do remember being totally blown away by it all. Um, it was just so exciting. <clears throat> and, of course, even since then, Goodwood has changed a lot. It's become the UK's sort of de facto main motor show, hasn't it? Um, it, is, it is the British motor show, yeah. Yeah, and lo- several manufacturers turn up with these enormous stands. I mean, the Jaguar Land Rover one was like a, a, an exhibition hall on its own. Just Staggering. Yeah, the Lotus standing, a little Lotus, which yeah. obviously isn't isn't that little anymore. Um, again, you know, a massive, massive presence. <clears throat> and then there's all sorts going on, isn't there? There's the rally stage at the top, which has been there for a little while now. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts going on, apart from the stuff running up the hill. It, it's become a mammoth event, a titan. Um, maybe some might think it's lost some of its charm from those early years, but it, I, I suppose it just demonstrates how brilliantly they run this event and also how much enthusiasm there still is for these machines in this country. Um, yeah, I don't think it has really lost mm. its charm. I think one of the things that I was you know, most taken by back in 1993 was that you could, how, just how close you could get to everything. You know, you could walk up to Formula One cars, Le Mans winning cars, you know, the greatest racing cars, competition cars, um, you know, that there have ever been. Mm. And you still can. Yeah. That's true, that's true. Um, and there are, um, okay, there's a, there is a driver's club where, um, you know, drivers hang out, but you can often just find yourself um, rubbing shoulders with your heroes. And, you know, it's not like, you mm. know, Formula, modern Formula One, which is basically a gated community where everything is kept away from the paying punter. Um, and I love that about it. I mean, clearly it is a, yeah. you know, it is a very, very commercial event now. You know, people go there to you know to show their wares and to sell their stuff and that's absolutely fine but i think ultimately it's still a place where real enthusiasts you never talk to people came up and you know chatted to me about Mm. stuff they're just diehard car lovers and they what they know is that they go to the festival of speed and they're somewhere probably quite a lot of places there is something that whatever their interest is, whether it's bikes, really old cars, really new cars, you know, drift cars, formula cars, rally cars, anything, anything, it's there. And it's so inclusive, isn't it? You know, no one is, um, no one is left out. You know, if you're interested in any kind of two or four wheel personal transport, then the Festival of Speed is the place to be. I'm glad you mentioned that because <clears throat> I was wondering, around, I was there on the Thursday and Friday. The Thursday was lovely and sunny. The Friday was a bit grim, um, really raining at points. And <clears throat> wandering around, I realised what the, the, or rather who, the star of the show was. And you'll agree with me on this, I'm absolutely sure. The Festival of Speed is not about the racing drivers who get to drive cars, show off on the hill. It's not about the owners of these cars <coughs> who get to display their expensive metal. It's not about journalists like us who get special treatment. 
It's not about the manufacturers trying to publicise their cars. It is all about the couple of hundred thousand enthusiasts who turn up each year, having spent at least 54 quid on a, t- on a ticket and then loads more just to actually get there and spend the day there. Having the most wonderful time looking at static cars, watching cars being driven up the hill, seeing people and maybe meeting people that they admire and generally having a great time being a car enthusiast. The Festival of Speed is all about them. And I was struck by that as I walked around. And you hear little snippets of conversations. And the people who go there love cars. And they yeah. they are in the best right. way. And they are car geeks in the best way. They love the finer details about cars and racing. Um, it's not a, a sort of casual crowd. They love it. And it's so... It's actually moving and inspiring just to wander around and watch all this going on. I loved it. I loved it. You're absolutely right. And you you talk to people who go, who'll come to you and they'll tell you, I never thought I'd see one of those cars, Mm. whatever it is. I'd let alone see it, you know, moving, let alone be being driven by X, Y, Z, who would have raced it in period. Um, And you you hear those stories all the time. And that's why people go. Um, Yeah. 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 It's terrific. Mind you, if there is a, an, an individual who is the star of the show, maybe it's Richard Atwood, who was driving the Atwood. Porsche 917. Have you, have you seen the footage? Yes. Yes. How old is he now? 83. 83! So Richard Atwood, the man who first who won Porsche's first Le Mans uh, with Hans Hermann in the wet in 1970. He's 83 years old. And he's, and he's in... Yeah, there are... A couple of 917s that looked like the car that won it. There's only one that won it, and that was the car that he was in. He was in the real deal. And he's going off the line, age 83, giving it absolute death. Sideways this way, sideways that way. And you just think, <laughs> you know, Frank, I'll be happy still to be breathing at 83. And he's, oh, he's just a dude. He is so cool. Yeah. Uh, to, to, I completely agree. You know, I know that Vettel was there, and I think he put on a good show, you know, spinning Red 5 and that sort of thing. But... If there's one thing that put the biggest smile on my face, it was watching Richard drive that, that mm. 917. It was fantastic, yeah. Fair play to him, all credit to him. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, you were with, you were there all weekend for the full four days. Yeah. Uh, well, three days, I suppose. We'll three days, yeah. yeah. Um, and you were a guest of Porsche, so you were involved in all the celebrations they had going on. You drove a few interesting cars. Um, I, I was there for two days, and on the first day, the Thursday, I was just... Wandering around, really. Um, but there were several cars that I wanted to have a look at, like the Singer DLS Turbo, which is <clears throat> that wild thing inspired by the the Porsche IMSA car from the 70s, the 9345, I think it's called, um, with outrageous arches, yeah. crazy rear wing. It, I mean, it's an extraordinary-looking thing. It's not the Singer I would want, um, but I understand why... They've done it. Do you know, I, I was at a different event earlier in the week, Supercar Driver's Secret Meet, where they've got every hypercar you can imagine all lined up, and there's a Singer DLS in the middle of them. Um, and I, I think the Singer DLS, the standard DLS, is a gorgeous car. But in that company, it looks very, very subtle. Um, and so I, I can well understand that there are plenty of people out there with the means who would like a Singer that stands out in that kind of company. And I guess that's what the DLS Turbo is. Um, yeah, I mean, it, cer- it certainly stands out. Um, for me, I, I, I think maybe 
it was a bit too i don't know i think the thing is the problem is if you're going to do that kind of homage and i think the dls the one you were talking about um is absolutely gorgeous but i think if you're going to do that kind of homage to a an absolute classic from the past um it's just got to be done so well and you know i i i, I like the fact that it's striking i like the fact that it makes a real real statement um Maybe it doesn't matter that it's not pretty. Mm. Maybe I'm just getting at this. Maybe, maybe it's just designed to make a visual impact. I, I, I don't look I at think that think that's, that's a gorgeous car. I think that's no. a brutal-looking car. Maybe that's the point. And it was followed all weekend um, up the hill and around the sort of paddock and so on by what they call the classic turbo study. So, <clears throat> the, you know, the, now their entry-level car, um, which is going to be built in greater numbers, but of just a very pretty, quite subtle almost yeah. delicate thing and yeah. you got the contrast there the two sort of bookends of singer and i suppose you know as long as they're building the the subtler prettier stuff why can't they do a few of those more outlandish absolutely things? yeah i think they can sell them good luck to i also went to see the caterham project five we're calling it project five not project v aren't we we think it's a roman no union. no 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 oh i got them i got a right reading oh. for that oh really so it's v yeah oh. <laughs> it's v it's v for volts Volts, okay. Volts, yeah. I wrote about it being Project 5. It isn't. Volts, okay. So there you go. So you heard it first here. It's Project V. Well, there we go. Because it's electric. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, it was in a, in Caterham's stand in a, a little sort of, almost a glass box, actually. Yeah. You know, and it's surrounded by people, so it's hard to step back and get a, <clears throat> a sort of overall view of the thing. But from what I could tell, it really does look, actually maybe prettier than it does in the pictures. You, you get the sense of its proportions, the the shape of the rear arches in particular, um, so it's a. I thought it looked fantastic, uh, and I just hope that a that car does go into production, and b it's not watered down too much when when that happens. I well, I, I I had a I was lucky enough to have a kind of walk around with Anthony Gianarelli, mm. who designed it. Um, I I mean I think he has done an outstanding job. I think it is absolutely beautiful mm. uh, and i said to him how different is it going to be and he said basically that's the car wow you know he said you will scarcely notice any difference at all brilliant um which is great um i think i still think there's a hell of a job to be done with it mm. um i really do and i i hope to goodness that they can do it but i've just seen I've seen so many British sports car manufacturers try to reinvent themselves and come a cropper because they know that if they can charge, you know, big money for this, and I think they're looking at this thing starting at like 80 grand. Yeah, yeah. And also, it is so different. I think in most people's heads, you know, a Caterham is a car that costs up to and around about 40 grand and weighs uh, five to 600 kilos. Well, for this car, you've got to double it. Mm. You know, it's 80 yeah. grand and it weighs 1,200 kilos. Um, and it's an EV. And it is such a mental leap. Mm. I mean, okay, let, let me put it another way. If they put a Lotus badge on it, I think that it would do unbelievably well. Yeah. But I am mindful of the fact that, okay, and this is by no means a direct parallel. Um, nevertheless, there was a period when Caterham did try to do another car, a more upmarket car, a more civilised car. They called it the 21. Yeah. Um, and it, it didn't work. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I was saying this to them, and I said, the job you guys have got to do, and it's not as if they don't already know this, 
um, is you know, there's a hell of a marketing job to be done because it would be awful if a company that is being that brave and which has designed a car that is that beautiful um, cannot make it work for them because it's just not what people expect from a caterer. Mm. Um, yeah. And they're not prepared to spend 80 grand on something which at the back of some, you know, some people's mind is still a kit car company. We know it's so much more than that. But, you know, and I think that is a very real concern. I wish them all the best with it. I really do because I think it is fantastically brave. I think it is brilliantly executed. Um, and I love it when the good guys win. Mm. But that doesn't mean that they always do. So I'm going to keep everything crossed because, you know, it's the first um, EV sports car, really, since the Tesla Roadster 15 years ago, which was the first EV, effectively. No one's gone anywhere near that for 15 years. And Caterham has finally stuck its head up above the parapet. Um, but, you know, we know that Lotus is going to do something not unlike that. Um, and and whatever it was, 27, 28 years ago, it was the Elise that killed the Caterham 21. And I would just hate, 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 hate for Caterham to come a cropper with this because it was a great car. But, you know, you, we all know, don't we, that just because, you know, look at the Alpine A110, just because it, you make an amazing car doesn't mean you can sell it. No. No, and actually it's not immediately obvious that there is any kind of a market for EV sports cars. You know, no what there well there isn't one currently because there aren't there's no such car, but we can't say for certain or with any real confidence at all that people, that buyers of recreational cars like this are comfortable with an electric powertrain. Um so there's a job to be done there, as you say. And it's, you know, not just for catering, but Lotus, Alpine, Porsche, yeah. all the others. Yeah. Um, we're going to find out fairly soon, I suppose. Yeah. But, but, but the time will come where, if you want a sports car, it's going to have to be electric. So, mm. yeah, well. It's so, much of this, it's so much of this stuff has got actually very little to do with the product. It's to do with who's making it and how that is perceived and when it is introduced. Mm. Um, and, you know, there will be some manufacturer who's just sort of sitting back and thinking, well, this is all very interesting, but you know what? We're just going to wait and see. We're going to learn from their mistakes. And when the time is right, we'll come to market with a car based on all that knowledge, all that learning, none of it our knowledge or our learning, but we'll just sit Mm. there, we'll watch what other people do, and then we will turn up with something that is right. And, you know, that might happen. Um, I really hope it doesn't. I really, really, more than I can say, because, you know, I think a lot of people know that I, uh, I am a catering man through and through, always have been, um, and I wish them all the best with it. What I will say about an electric sports car is that the packaging is quite interesting, isn't it? Um, mm. Because there's no conventional combustion engine powertrain. So this catering Project V, um, it looks sort of roughly Alpine A110 shape and size, but you can have a 2 plus 2 or a 2 plus 1, which is unusual. Mm. One seat yeah. in the middle at the back. Yeah. <laughs> You certainly can't do that with a, a car that size and a conventional powertrain. So that is quite interesting. Um, but yes, I suppose we'll, we'll see when, when that car and others like it begin to come through. Now, there was another one, another debutant that I wanted to have a look at. That's the Aston Martin Valor. But it wasn't on Aston Stand. It was in a different area. I was going to say, I went over to Aston Stand to find it. Yeah, I, it wasn't there. So I, had, I, wanted, I, I never saw it. I had to ask Twitter where it was. And it was in... Um, the Gurney enclosure, so opposite the Cartier lawn, 
But oh, okay. I, I went I went over a couple of times, but I never had the right pass. I must remember to be more important because I I didn't get on the stand. <laughs> I didn't get to see the bloody thing. So it's weird to have this car that they're trying to make a load of noise about, and you can't actually go up and see it unless you are one of the privileged few. It was odd. So I don't know. I've still not seen the Aston Martin Valor. Um, maybe I will at some point. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we'll come on to your Porsche exploits, because there's a lot to discuss. But on, on the Friday, I was with Land Rover riding up the hill in the new Range Rover Sport SV. This is the, re- the replacement for the Range Rover Sport SVR. They've dropped the R, not because this is a more sort of comfort-minded car um, or a less sporting car. In fact, it is, they call it, the sportiest and most dynamic Land Rover ever built for the road. Is is that not a contradiction in terms? Which one? Sporty, dynamic Land Rover. I know. Or am I still stuck in the past? Am I still thinking about the Series 3 I got in the shed? Maybe you are, but the thing is, the Range Rover Sport SVR sold so well. People love them. The buyers just lap them up, um, yeah. and so I suppose Land Rover are going to do it. And so, hang on, so why have they? So why have they dropped the R? Because it was confusing people. They, you know, the SVR was built by SVO. Other SVO cars are just SVs, and so people didn't really know quite what SVR meant. And what they say is that whenever they apply the SV badge to a model, it now this is getting into marketing speak but it amplifies the character of that car. So there's a Range Rover SV, and SV amplifies the comfort and luxury of that vehicle. Um, And there's a Range Rover Sport SV, and SV amplifies the sportiness of... That's bollocks, isn't it? Okay, I didn't realise that. I didn't realise that at all. I just thought SV was um, more of everything, regardless of what it was applied to. So it's a new thing, I, I think. I, I don't understand the confusion about the letter R. Everybody mm. knows what R means. Mm. You know, it's it's race, isn't it? That's what people mean. If you've got a, a Cayman S and your mate's got a Cayman R, mm. his Cayman's faster than yours, isn't it? <laughs> That's clear. And actually, the fact that I had to ask why they dropped the R and whether that meant this was a less sporting car suggests yes, that there was more confusion. That is absolutely confusion. what my assumption would be. Yeah. Oh, it's an SV. It's only an SV. It's mm. not an SVR. When's it's the like R a Mercedes... Coming? Where's the R coming? Yeah, uh, yeah, I won't get one of these because I, I, I'm going to wait for the R. Mm. 
Mm. I don't so, know. I'm sure their marketing departments have got very sound reasons for that. But um, And I'm not in the market for it. And I'm probably not as close to it as I should be. But to me, I have, through that name change, through that strategy change, I have misunderstood what that car is. Mm. Mm. I had. Until I saw it parked up and noticed that it had carbon fibre wheels. Wow. So this is the Range Rover Sport SV first edition or edition one first edition i think limited to 500 and something cars all sold out in no time at all 170 something thousand pounds um so not all 170 thousand pounds <laughs> yeah 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 for range rover sport yeah so not all of them Rums. not all range rover sport svs will have the carbon wheels and the carbon ceramic brakes but the, yeah. the these first edition cars do um and they have that not really to save weight because it's clearly always going to be a massively heavy car, but to save unsprung mass. And that is yeah. quite important. And those wheels yeah. and brakes do save, in total, 75 kilograms of unsprung mass. That's more than me. <laughs> it's not more than me. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, not. Okay. But th- and that is significant. That really does make yeah, a difference, is. particularly yeah. to ride um, and suspension tuning. So it's, it does make a difference. Now, the, <laughs> the wheels look quite well protected by the tyres. But even so, you're going to hate to curb one of those things because goodness knows what they cost to replace. I was talking to um, Andy Preuninger. Um, you know, people mm. I'm sure everyone knows who he is. He's the you know he's the man who's developed the Porsche's GT cars for the last twenty uh, something years. Um, and I said, why don't you do? You know, you guys are absolutely addicted to lightweighting. Why don't? Why can't you get a carbon wheel on any of your cars? Uh, and he was talking to me about a product I can't discuss at the moment, um, but it's going to have magnesium wheels. Um, and I said, why do you want magnesium? Um, magnesium corrodes, and wouldn't carbon be better? And he said, A, they might have corroded in the past, but that there are new alloys, new ways of treating them, and so that's not the issue it was. But also, he said, they're lighter. Oh. And he said, why would you have a wheel that was as expensive as a carbon wheel um, as difficult or almost impossible to repair if you clout one. Um, and their view is mag is just better. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure mm. if I had a conversation with the people who decided to go with the carbon wheels on the radio sport, they would come up with a completely different set of justifications. But I just think it's, um, it's, it's interesting when someone who is clearly as highly regarded um, as Preuninger, um, who you know, was at, would be absolutely be in a position to have yeah. carbon wheels, and you could see that there might be a huge advantage chooses not to do it even so whoever thought there would be a land rover with carbon fiber wheels that really does <laughs> feel like a moment in time doesn't it it's yeah. amazing well um, i mean you know the, th- the fact is they're all you know all these first edition cars are sold so you know they the, the, their, ses- their success is already proven <laughs> so good luck to them so the the really interesting thing about this car is its new suspension system now the higher spec range rovers and range rover sports have 48 volt active anti-roll bars they're clever um bits of kit and they really do make a difference to how a car rides and handles for this they've got rid of that they've junked it and instead it has no mechanical connection between the wheels on either axle like a mclaren it uses a hydraulic circuit to manage roll control but it's got a second hydraulic circuit to manage pitch and dive so forward and backwards so it's got these two circuits um, and what it means is that like a McLaren you get this amazing ride quality and body control 
because you don't have whacking great anti-roll bars ruining the ride. But it's not just roll control, it's forward and backwards. So I was driven up the hill in this thing. When the, um, the driver accelerated really hard, and goodness me, this thing gets off the line, it just squats down a little bit and then pings off the line. And the previous car, which didn't have any of these systems, that thing would sit down so low at the back with its nose in the sky. Um, and then when you stand on the brakes, it would go right up on its front wheels. And the, the effect of that is that it feels kind of wayward, the old car. This new one, it's actually freakish. It feels super well controlled without just being on massively stiff suspension. So it still rides. Um, and actually it felt like a very well sorted performance saloon car in the way that those body movements were so minimal. Um, so it's, it's a very, very interesting thing. I can't wait to actually drive it for myself and drive it on a road. Um, but it's a super clever bit of technology that they've developed. And interestingly, this isn't Land Rover that's done this. This is Land Rover Special Vehicle Operations, SVO. This is a team of 11 chassis engineers who have done this. And it is a world first. Um, so they've gone to extraordinary lengths to try and make this thing so much more athletic and agile than the previous one. Um, I... I'll write, I don't think I can squeeze a full TI story out of this, but I'll write a short blog post explaining the suspension system in more detail um, because it is, it's very, very interesting. And you know, I credit to them for going to st- such enormous lengths to try but and build they, the best car they But are they going to roll it out across other things or do you have to spend 170 grand before you can enjoy it? As I understand it, the Range Rover Sport SV, the non-first edition cars, will have it. Um, and then... I would imagine it would get rolled out across other stuff eventually, but um, I don't know. We'll see. It's mm. very interesting, though. What else did we have? Did you get to see the Lamborghini Le Mans car? I did. Yeah, I went to the uh, I went to the unveil. Um, it looked good. It looked good. Mm. SC sixty three, um, which makes it sound like an AMG to me, but it's not. Uh, but yeah, no. cool looking thing. Yeah, um, it does look cool. I think it's great that they are. Um, that they're finally going racing at a decent level. I mean, yeah. I know that Lamborghini has been doing GT3 racing and, and that sort of thing. And I contend that Lamborghini has, apart from doing some Formula One engines, it's never been a racing brand. No. Um, and I think that's actually really held it back over the years. Um, you know, they've never um, built proper prototypes um, to race in the World Endurance Championship. They've never done a, you know their own formula one car um and that sort of thing and i think it's great that you know and i think you know having been very critical of the fia and the aco recently about the way they conducted Le Mans this year i think that in coming up with um these new categories and the avalanche of interest from manufacturers because they are affordable and they also provide um people companies with means of holding on to their staff uh, and that sort of thing i think it's i think it's great uh, the car looks fantastic it looks like a lamborghini mm. um which i think is very impressive mm. um who knows whether it'll be quick um but i mean the other thing is from the from manufacturer point of view there's there's not much jeopardy because even if it isn't that quick well they'll just balance a performance it until it is yeah. yeah so it'll all be it'll be competitive um and you know it'll be great to have an bmw will be there um acura i think might be coming in as in honda lamborghini so you know if we thought Le Mans this year was full of great brands next year it's going to be 
you're not going to be able to move for them. No. That's fantastic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's good. Uh, so the Saturday was cancelled owing yeah. to the weather. Um, yeah. I wasn't there on the Saturday. I don't know what the weather was actually like. But given the forecast for very, very strong winds and given that there would have been threat to, you know, danger to the people who were there, this ha- has to be the right decision, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think people... I think there well, certainly a couple of things. Firstly, I think that people were overwhelmingly supportive. Um, I was out doing something else, um, you know, because we had funny, suddenly find ourselves quite a lot of time on our hand. I was out. Um, I was out on the road driving um, GT3 RS. First mm. time I've driven it. I think first time anybody might have driven that thing on the road. Um, and I was just parked at the side of the road in a lay-by, taking some photographs, um, and a Tesla screeched to a halt beside me. Um, and a couple of guys got out, father and son. They'd driven down from North Yorkshire oh. to go to the Festival of Speed. Oh. Um, and far from spitting tax and going, you know, we spent all this money, we booked hotels, we've done this, we've done that, you know, our weekend is ruined. They said, it's not great, but under the circumstances, I don't see what else they could have done. Mm. And the thing that I think you have to appreciate is there are so many temporary structures yeah. there. Um, so many things which if a proper and it's not about you know you know you look at it and you think oh the winds were only blowing constant at 35 miles an hour you get a 60 mile an hour gust and there were gusts of those sorts of strength blowing around that part of the country at the time gets up underneath something and lifts it off i mean it could land on anybody or anything Mm. um and to me it was absolutely clearly the only decision that could be made because if it had gone wrong I mean, they might have got away with it, you know, and whooped it up if they did. But if it didn't, that would be the end of the Festival of Speed. If something had got in the air and, God forbid, um, come down on someone with, you know, tragic and possibly terminal consequences, no more Festival of Speed. Um, So they did, you know, and it's the other thing is the Festival of Speed has been happening for 30 years. You know, originally it was a day, then it went to two, then it went to three, then it went to four. So I don't know how many days of the festival of speed there have been but many hundreds and this is the only time the only day that it has had to not be opened yeah um so i don't think that's a bad record and as i said i don't think you know they could have done anything else no and if you're going to take a chance like that by if they had chosen to run it despite the forecasts maybe you do get away with it maybe you get away with it 10 times or 20 times, but it only has to go wrong once for the consequences to be disastrous. So, And you it, can't, you have no control over that, particularly no. because you're, you know, you, you've got thousands of concession stands there. Yeah. Um, and you don't know what everybody else is, all the infrastructure they bring in. You know, you don't know, you can't go around to every single tent and just say, have you got everything properly bolted down? Yeah. Um, have you done risk assessments? Do you know what will happen if this is hit by a 60 mile an hour? It's just literally impossible to do. So mm. you can't take the risk. No. Okay, so tell us about your weekend with Porsche. Well, I'm not going to blather on about it. A, because I'm going to write about some of it on TI. Um, and B, you know, I think I spend more than enough time on this podcast banging on about the stuff that I've driven and what a lucky boy I am. Um, so uh, I did drive the Porsche 936 that won Le Mans in 1981. Um, but I'm not going to tell you about that, sorry, because I'm going to write about that. Um, because Good. there's a very specific and interesting story behind that car and how it got on that grid and how it did what it did. Um, 
the car that I, I was most happy to be in, so Friday, as you said, the weather wasn't great. In fact, the weather for a lot of Friday was absolutely lousy. And of all the cars that Porsche brought, there was only kind of one which you wanted to be on a day like that, which was the 953, the car that won hmm. the Dakar. Yeah. Um, in 1984. And as luck would have it, have it I, I, I drew it on that day. Um, and it's, you know, it's a 911 and it won the Dakar that year, but it is, so it's designated 953. It was the first ever four-wheel drive Porsche. Mm. It's basically, it's a 911 on stilts. Um, so 84, so that would be an SC. It's actually got a slightly detuned engine in it because it had to run on um, the kind of fuel that you get in places like Mauritania and Senegal and that sort of thing. Um, but it's completely open. It's got no silencing at all. So it's ridiculously loud. Um, and you could just go skittering off the line in this thing. And it doesn't really matter whether you're on the tarmac or all the grass. It doesn't seem to bother the car at all. Um, there's very little grip. So you just skidded about the place. Um, and, I was, and it was just so, it was just so much, so much fun. It was mm. just such a, and, and, and often, you know, sometimes you, you find yourself on the hill in what is quite a slow car, and it's such a relief. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, because you're just, you know, no one's expecting anything of you, and you're just bimbling along, having a fun, having a bit of a skid, and it's just, you know... Whereas if you're in the car I'm going to talk about next, you know, if you're in an absolute monster, um, I guess it becomes serious fun rather than just fun fun. Um, they they you, talk about you, and, type and, 1 and, and type 2 fun, don't they? Exactly, yes. Yeah. Fun, fun so that's this fun is, at the time and fun that's fun afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So the Dakar was fun at the time. Mm. Um, and, 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 yeah, but also, it's, it's still such an important car. And you know, because the Festival of Speed, it's not a motor racing event, so the, the terms of engagement are different. So you know, I think I was probably still wearing the seatbelts that Rene Metger had when he won that event. Um, and the car is completely unchanged. And wow. it was just, yeah, it was just fantastic just to be in there and to, and to hear it and to drive another exp- car that was part of a very different part of Porsche history. Mm. Um, and then I got in the 917.30. Blimey. Blimey, blimey. Yep. So this, this is a 917, but it's the open top car, isn't it? Um, yeah, so this is the car, this is the car that most people will think of the nine, who know about the nine seventeen thirty will think of Mark Donoghue racing yeah. it in Can Am in yeah. nineteen seventy three. Um, blue car Sunoco, mm. um, diehard livery, won everything, um, and basically killed Can Am because nobody else wanted to compete after that. Um, but turbocharged. They could, how, how, how big is the turbo? Pretty enormous. Uh, twin turbocharged. Yeah, both both mm. of them the size of dustbins. Um, five point four litre twin turbocharged flat twelve, um, producing eleven hundred horsepower all day long. Um, What's it weigh? Eight hundred kilos. That is ferocious. Well, I mean, it's. I mean, I was trying to do the mass. It's about, I think, the same power to weight ratio as a modern Formula One car. Yeah. But with massively more torque. Um, so it's you know this car may be well this car yeah it's good. This, the, the car I drove is about fifty years old, um, but it's still well I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so they made this car the nine seventeen thirty which you know famously went off and did everything that it did in Can Am. But before they could do any of that, 
um, they needed a test car. And so the car I drove was a test car, chassis one. Um, and they, amazingly, they made it. So the car they had before was called the 917 Team 10, which only had, poor thing, a 1,000 horsepower. Yeah, um, it was a tricky car to drive. It did win the championship in 1972, but um, they thought that this thing would be calmed down somewhat, particularly if they're going to give it even more power by having a longer wheelbase. So what they did was the car that I drove um, had a variable wheelbase. Wow. They could run it. And I'm not sure how they did it. I guess they did it with the suspension. Yeah, rather with than different wishbones like, or something. You know, yeah, exactly. Rather than sort of like welding in more tubing yeah, between yeah. the... Yeah. <laughs> um, and they eventually... You know, so they went to places like Paul Ricard. And I think Mark Donahue drove this car. And they, and, and they settled on quite a big extension to the wheelbase. Um, and so they then parked that car until 1974... I think it did do a, maybe a race or two in 73. But in Europe, there was a much less well-known series called Interserie, which is basically Can-Am for Europe. Um, and it's exactly the same car. So this went off and then 1974 did um, the Interserie series. And it did six races, won five of them. Hmm. Um, and then it won another one in 1975. Um, and then that was that. So this was the car that I drove. Um, yeah, I think it's Valent. I think it's sponsored by uh, a boiler, a company yeah. that made boilers, central heating systems. Um, and it's been restored over a period of time by the Porsche factory. Uh, and, and how can I put this? It is now very, very healthy. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Every single horsepower it ever had is still there, and maybe a few more. When I asked the the brilliant bloke who was um, helping me with it and looks after the car. And I said to him, come on, how much power? And he went, 1,100 horsepower. Pause. Maybe more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely more then. Now, yeah. Um, okay. So, um, so, so 1,100 yeah. horsepower plus 800 kilograms. Yeah. Is yeah. there a less ideal place to try to get to grips with a car like that than Goodwood? <sighs> You've got... Tens of thousands of people there. Many more watching online, and the social yeah. media feeds are going to keep resurfacing anything that um, looks a bit dramatic. Goes wrong. Yeah, it's narrow. It's tight. Yeah. It's twisty. Um, yeah, potentially quite slippery after all the rain. Yeah, and you've got one <sighs> minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And literally, the first time you drive the car ever is when you get down to the start line. Yeah. So if, any, if there is any footage of me going up the hill, when I go off the line, I have driven the car for about 30 seconds. Bloody hell. And you've got to try and <sighs> understand this thing, not crash this thing. And it's, there are other complexities to it, other than the fact that it's a ridiculously powerful car and a very light body. Mm. For instance, you know, you are on absolutely stone-cold tyres. Yes. This was on Avon treaded slicks, so you know, um, which you know, they're absolutely massive tires, but they are stone cold. There is no way you can warm them up. Mm. Um, you can by giving it absolute death off the line, um, warm up the rear tires a bit, but that actually just gives you more, even more understeer yeah. when you get to turn one. Yeah. The other problem with this car is it has an essentially locked differential, hundred percent lock up. <sighs> um, which gives you amazing traction on the way out of corners, the price of which paid is that it just doesn't want to turn into corners at all, particularly mm. on cold tyres. So 
yeah so you've got to try and understand all that and you've got a minute in which to do it and the price of getting it wrong is unimaginable yeah <laughs> nevertheless off you go nevertheless idiot that i am um i kind of think that's something that i wouldn't mind having a crack at uh, so i actually i think the probably the best thing i did i got I, so I'd, I'd i'd asked i'd said to them you know how do i get this thing off the line um it revs to okay i only used seven but it revs to eight i think mm. so i probably didn't feel all 1100 and something horsepower probably only felt a thousand of them or something but they said give it about five and a half um and don't drop the clutch just feed it in it'll be fine so i thought mm, okay so i did that and the racket this thing is making is you're sitting all the line with five and a half on there mm. i mean it, even with earplugs in balaclava helmet it is just your entire the entire space between your ears is just full of this sound mm. and then you're, you're just thinking i'm really not sure what's going to happen now i guess we'll find out and the light goes green and you take your foot off the clutch and you know what it was just beautiful it just you know i it, i got very lucky well, well all the bloke who told them i got just about a right amount of wheel spin and the thing just went surging forward and i was just thinking this is brilliant i'm just having a great time here and then i got to turn one and it just didn't turn oh god it just didn't turn despite the fact that i kind of was expecting it because you know i knew what i was dealing with and you know i understand the way these things work even i just with all the preparation just didn't expect it to not turn and there was a minute no it wasn't a minute there was a split second when i was sitting there thinking hmm this might be interesting mm-hmm. and i might have to really try and manage this situation but by that stage i'm completely off the gas um and there's a lot of engine braking yeah so something else i've had to mention is the car does 100 miles an hour in first gear oh my god yeah so i'm still in first wow um and so you've got an enormous amount of engine braking um and you've got the weight pitched forward and so then it bites and you turn in and your heart comes out your mouth and you think oh well, that's all right um and then yeah got through turn two second gear past the house i don't know what it would do in second it would probably do 160 miles an hour or something like that in second gear it's got four gears wow um and i imagine best part of 203rd and then everything else up to 240 or so in <sighs> in top um so your second gear past the house and you're thinking and you're and you're you still haven't put your foot anywhere near the floor yet mm. anywhere near it <laughs> and you are really really bloody motoring um and then you're just thinking malcolm 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 and you've had this experience of the thing not turning in so you're thinking, okay so i'm going to be super conservative with this um which i was i think i changed back down to first um and yeah it was that was kind of okay and i thought well okay those are the slow corners done and i knew that it'd be better in the quick corners because the diff wouldn't have such so big an effect so i let it go a bit more going up the hill towards the flint wall and that completely blew my mind and i was thinking thinking well this is one of the most intense experiences i've ever had in a car and then the next bit so like through the flint wall and the right that's after that i was just kind of managing it because it's so narrow there and mm. it's it's just so difficult and i was just thinking to myself all i've got to do is get it out of the last corner and straight and then i'm just going to then i'm just going to i have to find out what this thing will do mm. Uh, and so I got the car straight and there's a short run to the finish line and I just thought well sod it I'm just going to put my foot all the way down 
and explosion. when it bit, yeah, I, I, I said on Twitter, I'm like, absolutely, mate, it's, it, it's well, I'm, happily no one has ever detonated a bomb right behind mm. me, but it's like a shockwave hits you. It's like a force you cannot understand. Um, and you're very aware of it for being behind you for some reason. Um, and yeah, you're just... The horizon kind of moves towards you. And it's it briefly... Your brain kind of splits. Half your brain is just in panic mode because it has not experienced anything like this at all. And it is such an alien... And, you think, and, and it is thinking... You know, this is not something that is sustainable with, you know, continuing to exist because we've never done this before. And Mm. look at the environment. Look how narrow this road is. But then there's another bit of your brain which is going, actually, this feels all right. The car's still going completely straight. It's not snaking. You know, you're not having to correct the steering. So stay with it. So I did. Wow. Bloody hell. And across the line you go. And across the line you go and... um, and just, you know, file that in the one for the grandchildren memory. Um, mm. Yeah. That's fantastic. And you weren't one of the handful of cars that met a, a hay bale yesterday. Several went off, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, it, you could be smug about it and go, ha ha, you know, pull no. it. But actually... It's easily it's, done. It's, ju- it's just so easy to do. Yeah. And there but for the grace. Yeah. Genuinely. Quite. Quite. Yeah. Um, well, there you go. Goodwood Festival of Speed. 30 years of it. Uh, we love it. It's become a mammoth, a titan event. And, well, we look forward to it every single year, don't we? And bring on 2024. Um, now, once again, we're not going to do a listener question because that was a busy episode. Um, we'll save this one that I've got. Actually, we're not here next week. We're taking a week off, a summer break. Um, so you'll have to make do without us for one week. But we will be back after that. Um, chatting more nonsense about cars and racing and all that good stuff so um, tune back in in a couple of weeks um, and we look forward to talking to you again then bye bye